Amen. Good morning, Mercy Hill. Uh, I just wanted to take a moment to return the kind word from Ryan Mason. He, uh, many of you know that uh, Ryan is a wonderful friend and knows more of the Bible than just about anyone I've ever met. But uh, even more importantly, Ryan walks it out. And so Mercy Hill is blessed to have you on board, brother, and, and our family is blessed to know you. So thank you, Mercy Hill, for the honor of diving into the Word of God uh, with you this morning. Um, we have zero time to waste, so I'm going to ask if you can turn to your Bibles, James chapter 3. James is the most extended chapter on words or the tongue um, in the Bible. As far as Charles Swindle's concern, this chapter is about the mucous membrane behind your teeth that's directing your whole body and carries tons of power and tons of weight. So before we go any further, um, I have a bit of a confession to present. I feel like this is an appropriate time for that. Um, this past weekend, my wife and I got away for a couple days, and we were looking in some stores, and uh, I purchased a pair of shoes that I promised would never touch my feet. Um, I bought a pair of Crocs. Um, some of you are believers, and that's, praise God for that. Uh, in, my, in my defense, uh, they're not the Swiss cheese-looking uh, Discovery Zone plastic ones, but they, these specific Crocs are covered in cloth and have like a rubber uh, bottom on the shoe, and they're like walking on the very streets of gold in Revelation. Um, they're like little my pillows for my feet. Uh, while we were in there, uh, my wife saw a pair of, the, of these Crocs, um, and she said, uh, look at these, they have snakeskin straps. These are, these are awesome, but she goes, but, you, but I know you'd hate them. And I said, what? I said, they look fine to me, just kind of nonchalant. She looked back at me in shock, and she said, 10 years ago, while we were on a date, you told me that you did not like it when women dressed in animal print anything. I said, What? I was like, I don't remember that. It looks, it looks great on you. I think, actually, I, I'm kind of, I think it looks great on you. I think animal print, you could rock animal print. It sort of has a mob wifey feel sometimes, depending on like how you're wearing it. But like, you know, you look great in animal print. I'm fine with you getting those shoes. And it was that same, that moment, she felt both completely frustrated and yet really excited. She was frustrated because she's like, this doofus doesn't remember saying that. And then he, his taste changed. He never let me know. And then she's excited because I just opened up her world to a realm of possibilities in fashion. <laughs> And all I could think about as we left, and this was like yesterday, and I'm preaching on this this morning. I didn't believe it was any accident at all. But all I could think about when we left was, I must have said that to her one time in 11 years of being together. And it had that much impact on her life. The sobering reality, no matter how it hits us in our everyday life, is that our words carry immense weight. And often, they carry more weight than we realize they carry. And this isn't a rare occurrence. It's often. It's all the time. In fact, it might be safe to say that many in this very room are still dealing with a hurtful word that was said to them or over them years ago. And if given the option, they would much rather have a scar or a bruise instead of carrying the painful weight or coarse, unthoughtful thought that that person had to express to them in that moment. Words burden the soul, if not used correctly. 
The book of James has a lot to say about the tongue, like Ryan read. And, and I want to begin and end sort of transparency. So let's talk for a second about words themselves. In preparation for this, I personally have felt like a massive hypocrite bringing you this word this morning. I spent uh, some time gathering the family and apologizing to them before this for my lack of control with words. I mean, you spend your life developing or even often hiding behind a quick wit, or when words come easily, you tend to inadvertently desensitize yourself to the effects that your words have on other people. You tend not to even notice and pray that God grant you a spouse with discernment. And so whether it be like a jab between buddies or a broken promise, or an angry fit in front of our children. There are many times we wish so badly we could grab those words after we've spoken them, bring them back in, but the damage has already been sort of inflicted. This is why we have to work to obey his commands. This is why we have to jump on discipleship classes because we're not preparing for something while we're in it. We're preparing something so that it doesn't happen. I don't preach this text lightly recognizing that my own struggle is real, but at the same time, I'm actually sort of excited for Mercy Hill this morning, and it's been my prayer for you because, and you'll see this as you read the scriptures, when God goes for the jugular, he isn't doing it as a bully. When God gives us a hard word, he's a caring father that wants his people to share in the holiness That when it's a hard word, he doesn't want just to share in the holiness, but he wants to put us in a community like the church where other people's tongues and minds will help us control our own tongues and minds. And so when I think of the greatest help I've received in running the race of the Christian life, it is from the words of others. Is this true in your life, church? I mean, we might talk about how we remember course words, but do you remember when you received a word of affirmation that you really, really needed Someone out of nowhere just said, I want to encourage you, and they went for it. So now we're not just saying that there's damage in saying the wrong things. There's damage in not saying what you're supposed to say when you're supposed to say it, which means that Jesus does what Jesus does and makes this about the heart. Let me give you an example. Affirming, correcting, people in your life moving you to chase Christ. You know what's happening before the word is presented here at Mercy Hill? You know what's happening? Nick's pastoring you in song. Nick's preparing through the lyrics your soul. Sunday mornings, he isn't performing. He's pastoring you for Christ in God's own words. So we remember, so we take heart, so we do our jobs in obedience. Remember that God is both great and good no matter what season we find ourselves in. And the mere truth that we will see sort of flooded in this text is that Jesus gives us the spirit to comfort and convict, but he gives us the church and corporate worship to remind us, to remind us that we are in daily need of his presence and his discipline. Have you ever started the first song in worship and you're sort of dazed off? You're not fully engaged yet? You're sort of like lukewarm praising and then Nick goes all cell phone superstar and you're like, come Lord Jesus. This is the thing about our words. The things we are saying, they are always working some way or another regardless of whether or not we know it. And here's the inescapable truth that I want to sort of present thematically this morning is loud or silent, 
Our tongues are always affecting the environment we are in. So what is our life saying about us, beloved? That's what we're diving into today. Two stories that have gripped me with some encouragement and some terror about the importance of using our tongues rightly. Uh, The problem isn't here. The problem is here. And so James gets that. The heart controls the tongue, and the Holy Spirit has a choice of words. There's a book called Bite and Devour by Alexander Strout. He gives these two illustrations depicting the power in our words. Um, He heard about a church that had gone 50 years with a history of peace. Not a split in 50 years. Not a massive, overblown controversy. No significant split or division in 50 years. And some of us may not be very uh, overwhelmed by that. And it just shows maybe that we haven't been in church for 50 years. This church had all of the necessary ingredients for division. Number one being it had other humans. Difficult doctrinal decisions to make. It had style changes and look changes. And the leaders had strong personalities and they were meant to work together and they took decisive actions and there was no split in 50 years. So when Alexander Strzok was writing this book, he asked the pastor, what's the secret to this, man? Share your wisdom. There are other pastors that want to know how you made peace for 50 years. And this is what the pastor said. Through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the elders have always thought to act according to firm biblical principles, especially during the most difficult periods of conflict. An awareness of how to speak and how to act. In the tongue, and the pastor goes on to quote Proverbs, is the power of life and death. And remember this, church, this, this place, every church he was in, this one church for 50 years, still had controversy. There's actually only one place that is void of controversy, and you and I have to die to get there. But there could be unity and peace in the midst of it if we seek the Holy Spirit's direction while running the race. The other story in this book haunts me as someone who's in ministry professionally or vocationally. He says it in one line. He writes, One evangelist who had started a number of churches over a 40-year period told me every single one he had planted had eventually folded because of sinful infighting among believers. That was his life work. He looks back and sees several churches planted under his care but with no peace because bodies have torn themselves apart because there was no deliberate effort in the church to teach the people how to use our words when there is conflict. And that's why I wanted to bring this word to to Mercy Hill this morning, not just within the church, but the home, the marriage, parents, friendships, careers, there will be conflict. So do we know how to use our tongues and mouths in life-giving ways, even in the midst of chaos or worse, a mundane routine? And so if you look at the book of James, James is a book of real religion, sort of living theology or lived out theology, intentional biblical Christianity. And James, being the brother of Jesus, was big into seeing all that great theological depth actually applied in the life of a believer. When you know the right answers, but you don't live out the right answers, it's called cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity isn't biblical Christianity. 
He's saying true Christianity, true religion is actually applied after you've learned it, that you're not just coming, filling your head with something so you can either justify your own sin or ignore it completely, but you're ready to leave the walls of the church to expand the walls of the kingdom through discipleship. And James had some great hits in his book, Faith Without Works is Dead. We like that one a lot. It says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, that person's religion is worthless. And it's interesting is there's not a lot of deep theology talk in the book of James. If you're writing a systematic theology book, you're not really going to James. You're going to Romans. But if Romans is a warm fire, then James is a thermometer that checks and sees our temperature. Rich Mullins once said, faith without works is like a song you can't sing. It's as useless as a screen door on a submarine. And what do believers need to sound like? We hold our belief in Christ, in our hearts, hearts people can't see, but we reveal our faith through our tongues and people can hear and see those things. I just want to hit two points today about James' application in chapter three. Number one being the tongue directs. The tongue directs. It's not your feet that lead you or your nose, but if you want to know where you're headed and where you're going, the direction setter of your life is your tongue. James uses two illustrations to sort of tell us about the nature of our tongue. If you look in verse 3, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Now, if you were preaching this sermon in the northeast somewhere or maybe in the middle of a big city, that might not apply. But in 2020, when we're far past agrarian societies, we're still in Yuli. So there's a good chance you guys have ridden a horse once or twice in your life. Um, I know that I'm the exception to that rule, having been raised in North Jacks, lived in Callahan, Hilliard, Yuli, and Fernandina Beach, and I've only been on a horse like three times. And it's definitely something that seems easier than it is. For me, you guys may be like, that's really easy. What's wrong with you? But for me, it looks really cool, and I give it a shot, and I'm just immediately uncomfortable. I don't like anything about riding a horse. Love horses, but I don't like the idea that at any moment that horse could decide to run as fast as he could and I'm just praying. Horses weigh like 1,000 to 2,000 pounds. And I'm not a horse expert, I looked this stuff up before I preached. <laughs> just to let you know, they're incredible animals. Like 25 to 35 miles per hour with you on their backs. Horses won't even sniff the wrong way if you throw 500 pounds on their backs. All this, and horses have human-sized ankles. So if you are like, what did you get from the sermon Sunday? Well, horses have human-sized ankles. You really need to provide some context so they're not going to know what you're talking about. If you walk up to a horse and you push it on its side, nothing happens. But try that from behind the horse. It'll knock you back into the 90s. You'll be waking up wearing denim and drinking surge. But if you put just one piece of metal in the horse's mouth, one little bit goes into the horse's mouth and then just a tug of the leather rein on the left side or tug to the leather rein on the right side, you can take that horse anywhere. You can put the smallest woman on the world on the biggest horse and she can direct that sucker anywhere she wants to go. This incredible 2,000 pound horse is completely controlled by that tiny bit. James uses that illustration on purpose. He's saying that's the tongue. That's our tongue. 
That tiny organ you speak with, it is the pace setter. It charts the course in every single part of your life. And this includes what we type online, not just what we say aloud. That's part of the pace setting. That's part of what comes from your heart and out your mouth is what you type confidently hidden behind your keyboard. In his book, Away With Words, using our online conversations for good, Daniel Darling writes, today we can both get the news quickly and react just as quickly. We can thump a few sentences and press send, immediately expressing our thoughts to thousands or perhaps millions of people around the world. And our instinct is to be right, to be right. I want to be right for the Lord, to be first, to be heard is one of the reasons why we chase mistakes. There is a better way for Christians to read the news and process the stories on our timelines, and James 1.19 has the solution. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Everyone, in other words, nobody who bears the name of Christ is exempt from the Bible's commands toward thoughtful speech. He writes that in one, and then he goes after the tongue in chapter three, verses one through 12. We live in a culture, though, slow to listen, quick to speak, and fast to anger. And we have to sort of sit back and ask ourselves, do I care more about the righteousness of God than I do the appeasement of men? Is this wise? Is this fruitful? Or am I out just to get likes and get shares? Because my name would be glorified. It's a form of idolatry to not bridle the tongue. And the second image James uses to demonstrate the tongue's direction is that of a ship. Look at verse four real quick, church. Look at the ships, wherever the will of the pilot directs, which means you can be moving like lightning on the water on a 20-footer, flying on your boat, and one little movement to the left or the right can either get you where you want to go or things can go wrong really, really fast. You ever been tubing? Hey, dads, have you ever been tubing? <laughs> so you know where I'm going to go with this already. You ever been tubing um, and you had that moment where you send your kid in the air on a tube because you overcorrected the turn at too fast a speed? And all you hear while she is in the air on that tube is like, hello, darkness, my old friend. And in that moment, you're just praying to God that your wife is not watching from the dock, just hoping she has developed some type of athletic ability in the last five minutes to land this thing. That sharp turn, James is saying, that's your tongue. Do you see where he's going with this? Less than a second of lacking the discernment that you need, less than a second can result in a broken relationship. James is begging us, church. He's begging us to bridle it. There's a, there's a weight. There's a weight and a purpose to James's elaboration on this warning because he knows we struggle with it. He knows we don't do this easily. Many of us have gotten the gist of the example, but you're thinking, how do I move me? I'm set in my ways. If you're set in your ways, 
you really don't believe the gospel of Jesus Christ has all the power it says it does. The gospel of Jesus Christ in its very nature changes your nature. It has that power. It's an encouraging note to be more like Christ. So you're asking, how do I move me? And after being Christians for so long, we might think of ourselves as pretty immovable objects. But have you ever felt like the same old sins are plaguing you right now that plagued you at the start of your Christianity and it's just frustrating? And so not succumbing to them necessarily, but the voice of temptation still seems rather close. How do I move me? Well, look, in tune with the Holy Spirit and in obedience with the commands of God, you start somewhere very, very small. Focus on something very small. If you get it right, it will direct everything else. It says like a rudder on a massive ship. Start with your tongue. Begin right now to develop better habits with your speech. You're like, Pastor, you don't understand. I have patterns that I've never been able to move, relationships, habits that I cannot change. The Bible says just a little pressure on the rudder and it will all move. Do any of you read daily through the book of Proverbs? It's a great way to read a book of the Bible a month outside of other Bible studies. I mean, we often pray for God to reveal his wisdom to us, but we won't take the time to read through the book of Proverbs, which is his wisdom. Sort of weird. One of the things I've noticed in Proverbs is I kept finding these verses that sort of split. This man does this and goes this way. This man does this and goes that way. It's typically a wise man and a foolish man, and it's been said that James, the book of James in the New Testament, is often the Proverbs of the New Testament. He's concerned with how you're walking it out. Proverbs teaches us about ourselves and about our God, and how can we know our desperate need for a Savior if we don't see ourselves as sinners in need? And so Proverbs will often phrase things like, this thing sets the direction. And here are a few examples. The difference between whether or not you're an encourager or discourager is in your tongue. Proverbs 15, 4, a gentle tongue is a tree of life. Hey, mom and dads, your kids, your spouses, do they walk away from talking to you and feel like they just ate a piece of fruit? Rejuvenated, refreshed, nourished. Proverbs goes on, but, pers but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. It breaks people. Perverseness of speech breaks people. Young generations are so sensitive today, just walking around, feeling sorry for themselves. Look, I can say this because I'm visiting this morning. The young generation was not raised by wolves. They had parents. They had other generations either speaking life into them or speaking death into them. We are called to bend the will of our kids towards Christ, not break them down into easily controlled puddles who will spend the rest of their lives gut-wrenchingly seeking an approval of a relationship that is built on unmet expectations and careless words. Christ follower, are we crushing people with the bits in our mouth? Are we damaging their morale on the daily? Are we injuring our children's souls with our mouth because we aren't actively walking in spiritual disciplines? According to our uh, children's ministry director, Miss Kathy Tufts at uh, Amelia Baptist, the, the primary problem our church has when it comes to our children is that there are several sibling rivalries. 
I guess recess at ABC just looks like West Side Story or something because she comes up to me every time just snapping. And it isn't just my kids, but I know if you're a pastor at a church, and Ryan, I'm sure you can attest to this, if you're a pastor at a church and your children's director comes up and tells you all the kids are doing this, it's a nice way to say, your kid's doing this. Please lead your family better. (laughs) The more you watch relationships, you notice this about people, guys, that the fighting escalates because no one tends to respond to a harsh word with a quiet word. It's typically harsh word, harsher word, harshest word. What are we doing? I don't know. And this isn't just between siblings. This is typically how bad relationships work themselves out. It's just one more loud and painful word than the next word. And what does Proverbs say? 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath. Wrath is coming. Wrath. It's Thanksgiving, and I want to talk about the election. Feel my wrath. It's okay. Let's talk about it. Crisis averted. I hate it when you do that to me. The world needs to know right now in the middle of this Chick-fil-A that you and I are not okay. (laughs) We can work this out. Let me know what I'm doing. Now, here's my favorite part. That's what the Bible says to do. The Bible says to do that. But some of us here, I'll, I'll portray that scenario, I'll put that out there, and you guys will be like, you do not know my wife. You do not know my husband. If I were to just get quieter as he or she gets louder, that's just going to make them more upset. So what do I do now? Not apply the word of God? Here's the thing. If it's your spouse, maybe you've trained yourselves to be fueled by your mean words and drama and arguing, and when someone asks you to just shake it off, you say, we're passionate. But the Bible says a harsh word stirs up anger. You blew a bomb off in my room, I'm gonna blow a bomb off in your room. And James clearly says, Christians will fight against behavior like that because it is damaging to the unity God has people created for in community. He's saying it's going against what I've called you to be. And this is how the world sees someone living for heaven compared to someone headed for hell. And can I just, again, can I just vent for a second? I'm just talking. These are just words. I'm just saying I'm just saying is the stupidest saying in the planet. IJS, it's the abbreviated form. Gen Z's given this. I can say whatever I want, IJS, JK, JK. I said something I don't need to say, probably shouldn't have said it at all, but really wanted to air out all my misguided emotions through passive aggression. So I say it or I post it, and it's okay, guys. I don't need any of that constructive criticism, folks. Don't worry, I-J-S. It's a nice way to be in complete disobedience and yet remove yourself of all the responsibility. 
I'm just saying is a way to say something meaningful and then relinquish yourself from the effects and consequences of your action. That guy's an idiot, just saying. Jesus said every word will be judged. You know what the Bible says? There is no just saying, there is saying. And what you're saying will either reflect that you're living for heaven or that you're living for hell. And when we speak, we set the direction of our lives and our eternities or James wouldn't have harped on it. Not that you can talk good enough to enter into heaven, but as evidence of the Jesus in you, the world needs to see a tongue directing all things to the glory of the Lord, not our own egos. egos. So we know that the tongue directs, but it does another thing in the book of James. It destroys it annihilates. Now here in the text, if you're, if you're looking down at that, you probably want James to jump in now and tell us how to use our tongues to bring life and steer in lives of godliness. And James, that was really tough to read, but really hard to get through. Could you just make it better now real quick so I can stop thinking about it? And he doesn't do that. He doubles down. James knows that Christ followers will leave here today and still refuse to think adequately on how our words have real power. He wants us to realize that we can think with our minds on these truths and yet get it on the surface, but then the realism of destruction that's attached to them becomes a part of our daily lives. And, and James is a good preacher. He gives great illustrations, and he gives us another two images for the destructive power of the tongue. He says in verse 5, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. And then he says this, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. We might be thinking a fire, that's a bit extreme for words. Whoever responds that way has not firsthand witnessed a church split. It's been one of the ugliest things you've ever seen in your entire life. Specifically because it's between people who are called to bring glory to God in their behavior and their actions. Tongues can create a spark of pain that can bring forth disaster. And this is not one of those, if we ignore it, it will just go away. We have to realize that one quote has ruined the life of a celebrity. One slur has devastated an entire company. The reason why we have to be so on guard when it comes to what we can become trapped in is because words themselves don't always look like flames when they are setting our lives ablaze, that big fires start as small sparks. Proverbs again, fills us with examples. The words of the adulteress are described as smooth honey. How many kids have cried themselves to sleep at night because dad ran away with a woman who was as smooth as honey? It didn't look like fire, but it was. It was lit by the fires of hell. Those same fires can be unleashed by gossip or slander. You will find someone within the next week who can't have a conversation without bringing somebody else's business into it. Gossip in the New Testament is a whisperer. It starts out some secrets between you and a friend. And I think my favorite part of church gossip is when it is done, it's meant to be covered to look like it was righteous. Like, you know what? We really need to pray for so-and-so. Why? Oh, well, this. And can you believe she did this too? Look, I just need to vent. This is what so-and-so is doing. This is what I haven't brought to so-and-so yet. Can I just air it out with you so we can both feel a certain way, so I can feel better about all my decisions? 
Funny thing about gossip, and here's something that I found very true after 35 years. If you are participating in gossip with someone, there's only like a 100% chance that that person spilling someone else's skeletons is just as eager to share your pain with whoever will listen when you're gone. It's only been 100% proven. So you have to fact check me on that. Because it isn't about the info, it's, it's about the prideful heart wanting to look great by making someone else look awful because it's easier to appear holy than really change. And this type of sin, James says, is a fire that's spreading and James is strongly advising us to squash it. Proverbs continues to warn of the destruction of conflict. Have you ever seen a conflict that you think would go away but just would not seem to die? Seems like it almost escalates the longer it's there, like a Hatfield McCoy breaking out at your HOA. The proverb says, for lack of wood, this is what's interesting. The proverb says, for lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisper or quarreling ceases. I know it's been 10 years ago, but do you remember doing that? I just wanted to remind you that this is who you were. Christ follower, hear me very carefully. I say this with love. If you were reminding someone maliciously of their past that Christ himself has separated in his mind as far as the east is from the west, you are doing the work of the devil. You see, the world will tell us how great we are. The devil will tell us who we were is what we are. And Christ just says, you're mine. You're mine. I bought you with my blood. You're no longer who you once were. You're new. And James is saying, act like it. The next verse was the verse, by the way, that brought so much conviction upon my head this week. I let my oldest daughter stay up to like midnight playing with her Legos. Where the flesh convinces us we have no room for error within the lives of our family members, we tend to really let them have it when we're at our lowest. Proverbs 12 says this, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise is like healing. See, rash is like when you mix anger and speed together. I don't, I don't like the patience involved, by the way, in properly disciplining my six-year-old daughter who thinks she is 25. I'm not a big fan of how much patience is involved in biblically disciplining her. That seems exhausting. You see, I have things to do. I have a phone to answer. I need to get this done and get this done quick because I'm the dad, so it's my job to control the entire environment. And I, and I realize, it's not like I, I live callously after I, I say something I shouldn't say to my daughter. I remember that I did something wrong. I go back and try to fix it. But do you know how I know she remembers? It's because I catch her yelling the same thing to her little sister. It's a frightening realization when you're a parent and you realize your kids are always listening. It's like little narcs everywhere. And you're like, you're not listening when I tell you to do things, but you're listening when I'm having private conversations. Got it. 
And of course, not all of our words are direct as sword thrusts, but some of us communicate without words. And some of us are sitting here this entire time going, good shot, Pastor. This sermon's not really for me. I'm not really the talkative type. I'm a, I'm a quiet person. Proverbs 6.12 says this, a worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech. A worthless person, a wicked man, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, all the while with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. The scary part about that is that your heart can portray to the people who you are, regardless of whether or not you say something or not. By the point of your finger, by the raising of your eyebrow, you may have sparked a flame that destroyed a family or a church. You know, I thought long and hard um, about how I was going to end this sermon. I had some good stuff, some really good stuff. I saved them for like coffee mug ideas. Um, it says, though your tongue defiles you, we can find redemption in the gospel. Your, your tongue makes you dirty, Christ makes you clean. Tongue condemns you. Christ justifies you. All that is acceptable. That is true, actually. If you're feeling guilty over this sin, the answer is only found in the full and free forgiveness of the Savior Jesus. He died on the cross for your sins, church. That is absolutely true. And if you have been changed by the blood of Jesus Christ, you should never be bored hearing about the gospel because it saved your life. But James doesn't end this 12-verse passage with this gospel reiteration. Instead, James doesn't soften his speech with a basis of gospel foundation. He says sternly, now that you know, now that you've heard, I hope you'll show that you are wise by living a life of these good works. In other words, I hope your heart has been changed by Christ and I hope the world sees that change. Verse 11, does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Jesus himself said, good trees will bear good fruit. Bad trees will bear bad fruit. True faith always produces good works. So you might ask yourself, why is the gospel solution not found at the end of chapter 3, verse 12? Because there is a kind of assurance that comes from saying, look, all your sins are forgiven by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Absolutely. But church, there's another assurance that comes when you are just honestly asked the question one Sunday morning. Are you living like you actually believe in the shed blood of Jesus Christ? Ask that question because your mouth will answer for you. The tongue may direct and destroy, but the word of the Lord heals. And so we are called to lean on his everlasting arms. One week ago was the anniversary of the death of two martyrs in 1555. Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer were burned at the stake for preaching justification by faith alone. And we are saved as an act of grace by faith in Christ. And they died because they would not alter the true gospel because they knew it wasn't their message to edit. Latimer said, while being engulfed in the flames, be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light a candle in England by God's grace that shall never be put out. 
And the phrase play the man means to be decent and trustworthy in one's actions. In other words, one burning brother was telling another burning brother, be a man and stand by what you fought for. See, their bodies might have been burned, but their actions spoke louder than words. You see, the two greatest commandments are not coupled by accident. And I I just want to bring this forth to you this morning. Is there a chance through the carelessness of our speech or the apathy in our actions, we don't love others, especially the unlovely, as well as we think we do? Is there a chance, especially in days bent more inwards, that we fail to see the angels we are entertaining because our hands are so chock full with things and the opinions of this fallen world? Does our pride need to come down? Does the spirit need to invade more aspects of our lives? Because here's the truth, guys. Too much is at stake for professed believers to forget how to speak in truth and in love for the glory of God and to get back to what we profess with real action. I pray that for you. I want that for you. I want that across the community. We need the Holy Spirit living within every broken believer to remind us, strengthen us, and hold us fast as we head to our Father at the finish line. Will you pray with me? Father God, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Father, we know that everything is for Christ Jesus, that we wouldn't even be able to be godly in our behavior if it wasn't for His sacrifice and resurrection, that we have only him to worship, only him to praise. And Father God, I know this is a hard word. I know that this is tough to hear. But Father, too much is at stake if we forget how to love in truth and in spirit. If we forget that our words matter and that they carry immense weight, only bad can happen and we want the kingdom to grow on the hearts of every believer in Jesus Christ, we want people to come to faith in Christ and to grow in strength in Christ and see people be saved and transformed from the old life they knew. That must be our heart song if we are sincere about the faith that you have given us by your grace. Father, we give you all the praise and all the glory for any good work that takes place here and after. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.